0: Hello, and welcome to the Carrier's Edge podcast. Uh, So just before we started this, Jane said, I don't know what we're talking about, so don't ask me. So what do you think I'm going to do for my first question? What are we talking about today, Jane?
1: I have no idea, as usual, Mark.
0: Well, we did review this. We do review these things in advance and have some thought about what we're going to discuss. But as you can tell, it's kind of loose and not very formal. So, uh, what we decided to talk about today is more focused training-related things. Uh, A couple of different elements. Uh, I've written an article this week about very specific training things. You did your um, webinar on training stuff.
1: On training Um, design.
0: Training design. So, we've got some nuts and bolts of, um, I don't know, adult learning theory to go through today to talk about some different stuff. So... Well, let me
1: just start with the fact that adult learning theory for the general populace didn't really exist. When I started my career in education and adult education, I was pretty much just kind of flying by the seat of my pants, which I think a lot of people were in the early 90s. It really wasn't much of a thing.
0: Well, there certainly wasn't a formal discipline that you could really go to school for.
1: No, you could have. I think you probably could have done your PhD or something, or your master's in in that sort of thing. But it wasn't. I mean, I had never even seen a a training like a class to be a trainer, a, a post secondary um, program for becoming a trainer. There certainly wasn't anything that I'd ever heard of called an instructional instructional designer. That. I'd never heard of that, and uh, I finally did find a uh, a post-secondary class at I think it was Ryerson and uh, on training, and basically, I took the first class and aced it because I' already was doing all of that stuff, but I never did get another. I never got another certification or anything like that. I mm-hmm. was still back in the '90s. I was like before '95. It was very early on.
0: Well, now there's lots of these things and lots of post-secondary mm-hmm. programs at the undergrad and postgraduate level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's uh, really boomed in the last little while. But this came up because uh, we had a conversation with somebody uh, last week. I guess it was last Friday, who started asking us a lot of questions, sort of the the technical questions about the. Uh, the company and our background in uh, adult learning and uh, e-learning development, and a lot of questions about different methodologies and things that we're using, and it was stuff that we hadn't really hadn't really thought about in years because. In trucking, you rarely come across these things. When we were doing consulting work, going into big companies and having to pitch to dedicated training departments and things like that, then, yeah, you get all kinds of these questions about that stuff. But in trucking, most of the uh, training people don't really have a background in training. They have a background in trucking. So they're not asking you things about um, Bloom's taxonomy or, or Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick levels and things like that. So having somebody ask us about that really was kind of... Uh, a pleasant surprise, um, but it was, it was a like,
1: little—it was a touch embarrassing because I was like, "I know this, but I don't remember." Yeah, it's what is this one years again? And years but as and soon years. as you sort
0: of uh, start looking at it, then it's like, "Oh yeah, oh, this. Yeah, and Then one. it all comes flooding back. So, um, so that um, come combined with uh, Jane doing her session this week on. Uh, um, uh, best practices for training design and how to create effective content and things like that really got us sort of uh, back into the mindset of the uh, um, the training consultant type and sort of the, I don't know, the theory and the uh, um, more of that uh, academic approach to uh, education design. So,
1: But what the real challenge, I think, in trucking was that we had to start from scratch. We had to start from, yes, your drivers can use computers. <laughs> yeah. And when you're trying to convince people that using a computer for learning is 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 a good idea, then you really stop thinking about the theoretical things. I mean, I use the theor- the theory is part of my training design, and I have a pretty good grounding in what is going to be effective for um, an audience. But no one ever wants to hear about that. Yeah, That is not the sexy part of training.
0: Well, and, and uh, just a, a little bit more sort of on, on the background on this. Um, the, uh, the particular thing that started this conversation going uh, was when we got asked if we use Kirkpatrick-style uh, learning evaluation in our content. And we were like, Kirkpatrick, which one is Kirkpatrick? And then it was like, oh, yes, the four levels. So I, did, uh, I wrote a LinkedIn article about it. Uh, this week, but uh, the uh, the Kirkpatrick four levels of evaluation talk about different ways of reviewing the training experience uh, with participants to see if it really works. So you start with did people like it? What is their reaction to it when it's happening? Then at the end of the the uh, training program, is there some sort of test or demonstration where they can show that they have learned what they're supposed to learn um, during that uh, event or during the activity, and then those are sort of the first two levels and those are the easier ones then it gets a little trickier and three to six months down the road you have to go back and do an evaluation where you sort of observe their behavior on the job to see if they're still demonstrating the stuff that they learned in the class and then from there you can start looking at sort of the business results so four different levels there now uh, in the sort of corporate training world that we came out of when we were doing custom training design, that was a regular way of doing things. So you would come in and you would build a course, you would run that training course, uh, whether it was classroom or e-learning, uh, didn't really matter. You would run it, test people at the end, and then three months later, it would be a normal project to go back and observe people doing things and see if it's working out. And then from there, you calculate the business benefit and did you get your money's worth, all of that kind of thing. So, uh, that was what we were doing in the on the corporate side. But when we come into trucking, it's hugely different because the most common background for trucking uh, education is really just, holy crap, we got to get all of this done yesterday It's really sort of a scramble it's but a it's reactive. also
1: it's over yeah, reactive is the word because it's you're reacting to a problem that a driver has on the road, so and the driver has hit something. Yeah, so drivers hit something, you need to go to training.
0: Or it's a new hire. So there's this constant uh, scramble to get all the new hires trained. And then uh, it is people that need renewals on uh, different certifications and things like that or it is post-incident, it's always sort of...
1: It's all very safety-oriented, and it's not really... It's not career development. No. It's not
0: really typical job training. It's really um, yeah, checking a box in a lot of ways. And, and we understand why it was like that, because when you're doing it in a classroom, it's so stupidly disruptive to the business that you only do what you absolutely have to. And you're not really thinking about, down the road, doing an evaluation three or six months later to see if that behavior is... Uh, is changing or improving or if there's business benefits to it or anything like that you're just saying did this thing get done yeah okay then you move on to the next issue to deal with
1: the only time that i think kirkpatrick would actually work in for driver training would be orientation Because you're doing your first level, did they like the orientation? Then the next level is, can they do the job? And then the next level is three to six months down the road. Are they able to do their, are they able to function in their job? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, are they able to contribute to the overall business? So you could do that sort of um, evaluation, and I think it would work really well. However, the, the reality is that orientation is going on so many times, you know, people are doing orientation every week. I think every company we talk to, there's orientation going on all the time. It's somebody's main job.
0: Well, and that's the other thing that ends up being so different, um, with trucking is, In a normal corporate environment, you don't have 100% employee turnover, so you can actually do these things.
1: Or even 50. I mean, 50% employee turnover is really hard to manage.
0: Yeah. Um, So if you're in a corporate environment where you've got 10% annual turnover, then yeah, you can spend time doing these things. Um, But in trucking, it's so different. I mean, three to six months after orientation, that would be great. Uh, However, how many of those people are even still around? I mean, that's the biggest issue is having people that are still around three months after orientation. So,
1: and you're not even concerned about how they're contributing to the business, is whether or not they're happy.
0: Well, this is the other thing uh, that I started exploring when I was writing my article is yeah, this is great in theory, but three months down the road, somebody could have all kinds of reasons for performing a particular way. Maybe, um, maybe they're not doing what the training said because they're unhappy in their job or they're getting a lot of pressure from operations to do something. That, or you know, the customers
1: stressed. are not customers are, are giving them the brief, Or
0: yeah, there's all kinds of things that can be preventing drivers from doing what they're supposed to be doing. And on the other side of it, things could be going really well that and no reason to do with the training it could be that things are going well that, you know inspections are going well because they're getting a bunch of lenient inspectors or uh, the job has changed and become easier for them or they've got new equipment or something there are so many different variables in the trucking world particularly around the type of training that we normally do here that it's really hard to say yes three months later they're behaving this way it's because of the training therefore the training worked so the kirkpatrick model is really tough to rely on in trucking it's a fine starting point but it um you need to to include so many other things to make it really meaningful that i i think um i think a lot of people kind of skip through it. They just, well, I think a lot of people haven't even really considered it, but we do talk to people. Or have ever heard of it. Well, we do talk to people about doing ROI calculations, how to figure out the ROI for training and things like that. Um, And one of the things we always say is, there's a lot of variables here. You know, training is never going to be the one and only thing that makes a difference. It's always going to be one of a bunch of things uh, that have to be considered. So it'll certainly help with that, but it's not going to do everything on its own.
1: And what I, I always find it frustrating when uh, people want to say things like, or when we talk to the press and they're like, oh, you know, so, you know, can you give us some, some stats on how much better a company's business is because, because of your training? And uh, I guess my marketing, if I put my marketing hat on, then I should be able to, you know, spout all of these things. But in reality, that should never be the case. I mean, training should never be the single solution to all your problems in terms of safety, that should be only one part of it. And you should not be able to point like our training system or any training system should be helping, but it should be, it's part of an overall strategy to try and reduce incidents or try and increase something. It's, it's very, um, it's difficult because on the one hand you want to impress people with stats, but on the other hand, it's really so much a a part of a whole.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that we're about to go live with a new website that has a bunch of stats front and center. So, well, we uh, do
1: have some. We was, do have stats, but
0: we also are, we'll be very quick to say that we are not doing this on our own. So, no. uh, a good example is we had a, several years ago, we had uh, um, a good case study with EG Gray Transportation that uh was very happy to see their out-of-service rates uh, drop in half and their safety numbers improve and all of these great things. Uh, and we went out there and shot a video and it, they were very happy and they had lots of great things to say. And they're saying, yeah, the training has really made a huge difference for us. But my answer to that is, well, yeah, we've helped, but you guys did a lot of the work. You know, they are providing a good environment for their people. They're uh, giving them a foundation where they can really benefit from that training. They're treating them decently. Uh, they're managing the operations side of it uh, appropriately. So there's a lot of things like that that allow the training to work. You know, another fleet may come in, sign up for the training, use it like mad, and not have a lot of benefit because they're not creating that entire environment. So there's, uh, there's more to it than just the training. Sure, great training is an important part of that uh, recipe. But on its own, it's not going to give and the I, results.
1: I think that people should be very, very cautious of that whole, you know, we did this training and it reduced X. I, I think that companies that proclaim that is that this is how you're going to, this is how it's going to happen. If you do this, then this will happen. It's, it's a dangerous, yeah, it's, it's a slippery slope.
0: That's snake oil sales for yeah. sure.
1: But anyway, I wanted to introduce another theoretical model. That is actually uh, more childhood education rather than adult education, but it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which kind of fits in this, is that you cannot, you need to have certain needs satisfied, certain basic needs satisfied before you can move to the next level. So basically, you have to be fed, clothed and warm before you can learn. So if you don't have any of those basic needs fulfilled, then there's no learning. And there's your learning. If you want to increase your learning, then you have to be comfortable in your like physically and emotionally. You can't learn things if you're not if you're dealing with all this other stuff, if you're dealing with starvation, nobody's learning anything. If you're dealing with like, for example, if you're in Syria, and nobody's learning anything in Syria right now, because they're trying to stay alive. So that is and that's a bit of a drastic example. But it's kind of like that in trucking, there's a lot of chaos in terms of people moving different companies, starting new jobs seems to be every three years. And differences in how people approach training and, and development. so there's I would say there's quite a bit of chaos and and also because nobody seems to have any standards when it comes to new entrants and that kind of thing. So and the fact that drivers go off and can have all these experiences, there can be a lot of stress going on. and I don't know if a lot of learning or that advanced learning can happen because, the basics aren't being addressed. So once you get the basics addressed, then things can progress. But I think that we are still in sort of the, the basic, um, let's get some good education into the industry so that drivers can feel a little bit more confident about who they are and what they do and their part in the company. And then you can, you can move on to something else.
0: So you got to clear away all of the other crap so people can yep. focus on the, the training or focus on the education. It's one of those things where anything can get in the way and disrupt it or distract it. So if
1: uh, bad customers,
0: yeah, if you want people to have a great education experience, whether it's safety training or career development or whatever, you got to sort of clear away all of the other junk. So remove the stresses around the job, around the operational issues, around the equipment. If all of those are taken care of, then you can have good learning. And I think that's probably a a really good explanation of why companies have vastly different experiences with all kinds of different training programs. And I I did talk about that a little bit in my article, is that some companies have a a whole structure around removing headaches for the driver. Um, And we see this in the Best Fleets program every year, is that there are some companies that just have good results, and those results kind of feed on themselves because... They've set up a structure where the the is providing good equipment. It's a good environment. It's sort of a relaxed type environment for the driver. Safe. It's safe. That's uh, safety. That whole safety thing. But everybody's not, there as a team. And not personal
1: safety. Yeah,
0: personal safety, all of that kind of stuff. So people can sort of relax and focus on doing the job. And then that feeds into other people relaxing and focusing on doing a good job. And it ends up being kind of a flywheel effect. On the other hand, you have some companies that really don't have that, so drivers are are squeezed uh, on the equipment, they're not getting their issues resolved, uh, they're squeezed on the job, the type of work, how many days they're out, all of these kind of things. So you've got all of these impediments that get in the way of the learning taking place, but also um, it's a downward spiral in sort of the overall job effectiveness. So it ends up that you know both of those companies could be doing the exact same training program, but will have exactly opposite experiences with it so there's a lot of things that have to be considered if you're going to have an effective training program as bizarre as it is make sure you've got all of your other problems solved first which yeah it's a it's a never-ending challenge but, but
1: that comes back to a question that we often have asked ourselves over the years and i think it kind of started in consulting when we started doing that is is this a training problem
0: yeah yeah Exactly. Is, is
1: this problem really going to be solved by throwing training at it? And I think that's that's a huge uh, question to con- consider before you start trying to say, okay, well, we need to train so and so. We just this person really needs just training? Okay, we'll go and put them in this course, mm-hmm. or we we'll make him do. The-. And this is why that whole um, with companies saying, okay, we're automatically going to assign training if you have an incident. Mm-hmm. That is just such the wrong approach because it may not be training at all that has anything to do with people's behavior. It could be all kinds of other environmental effects. So like what we've just talked about, it could be just, you know, people uh, having a really bad time on the job, having difficulty with their equipment, Mm -hmm. difficulty sleeping because they have a terrible mattress in their their bunk. I mean, who knows what's going on, but you cannot just assign training and have that be your answer. And it may be okay from a from a um, like a CSA um, point of view, maybe that's going to help you with your insurance is that you, I, well, you're you slapping training on everything. I but it drives me nuts.
0: And that's a wild goose chase because exactly. I think that is the perception that if you automatically assign training, and then you can look at it and you've got this policies that are like, okay, yeah, every time somebody hits a certain threshold, they automatically get assigned training. And now we've covered our butt. When you go into court, you can say, here's our policies and here's our process. We follow it completely. But it's just not going to work. It's, it's, I don't even have the words to describe how wrong I think that approach is. Because well, if you
1: look at it from the other side, so carriers before CSA, what was happening is that they would get... Uh, I can't remember how exactly it worked, but it was pretty much a – everybody got treated the same way for no matter what the problems were. So you would basically get an investigation, and that was kind of the way you got an investigation, and it it was – one size fits all that's that's what happens but what was happening is the fmcsa didn't feel couldn't get to everybody that they needed to get to so what they did is they started and with csa they started having different levels of in, of um not interaction but different levels of things that they do so the first thing is a is a letter the second thing is a you know something else and the next thing in and, and there's different levels of severity and I think that that's what would be much better in in with dealing with drivers is that you don't necessarily need to do training. The first thing you should do is basically acknowledge that something has happened and find out what's going on and then make decisions based on, you know, if it happens... If it happens that you know the person is repeating the same offenses or, or doing the same things wrong over and over again, then maybe you're going to up the intensity. But don't have the intensity for the first infraction be the same as for the tenth infraction. It can't just be a one-size-fits-all.
0: Well, yeah, and, and related to that, don't have a blanket solution that just automatically gets applied and mm-hmm. then think that you've covered your butt for some uh, future legal case that may come up because any decent lawyer is going to poke holes in that in a second uh, and it's not solving any problems so you haven't got the business benefit and you haven't covered your butt so it's just it's uh, very wrong approach to automatically assume that everything is a training problem because we see it so often these things come up and people say oh do you have training on this do you have training on that And it really isn't a training situation. It's a situation where a reference guide would be more appropriate or maybe a one-page checklist or something, some sort of quick reference for drivers to keep with them. I mean, in those situations, dumping them into a training course is not going to solve the problem because it's really something that they should maybe have with them um, or something that they should be doing more on the job rather than uh, through a sort of off the job training type situation. And maybe it isn't uh, a knowledge issue at all. Maybe they know what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not motivated to do it. So uh, there's lots of different things. You know, you got to solve the problem properly. Um So all of that sort of (laughs) comes out of the whole evaluating training effectiveness, and it's evaluating whether or not the training should happen in the first place. So yeah, we have some opinions on that that we're not afraid to share. Well,
1: I think what I was talking about yesterday in my webinar was setting objectives, and it's very, objectives and creating objectives and sort of thinking about them are, it's really boring. It's not. It's hard work. It's not. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's. It's not my favorite part. But it's always when you have a blank piece of paper and you don't know where to start. It's a really good idea to say, "Okay, what do I want the outcome to be?" And I think that um, when you think of when you put it into into objectives and the especially with drivers, so many companies don't set objectives with drivers because it's basically no. You're just going to get in the truck and go where we tell you. But in terms of, you know, performance and development and all of those things, sitting down with every single person in your company, including the drivers and saying, Okay, where do you want to? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Here's what we want you to do. So this is one of your objectives. This is how you're going to do it. This is how we're going to help you. I think that really helps when companies are doing that the best fleets tend to have those kinds of conversations a formal one at least once a year but they're doing giving feedback on a monthly basis and they're using csa um, in the states uh, to help them do that but that sort of ongoing discussion about what performance looks like is is really valuable and it it helps to clarify how like what success is going to be like And it doesn't necessarily include training. It may just be, it may be mentoring. It may be that someone just needs a a lot of support, a lot of pats on the back and, you know, attaboys, that kind of thing. There's very different, people are motivated by different things. And if you can figure out how to keep people happy, then they're going to stay safer and they're going to be better performers for your company. Yeah. There you go, Mark.
0: Okay. Well, am I supposed to set objectives or something and have people be better performers? We
1: set objectives and we have, we do that.
0: Yeah, this is true.
1: We (laughs) do that in our company. What are you talking about? Well,
0: yeah. Well, in terms of individuals, largely the objective is keep problems off my plate. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's,
1: come on. You do better than that.
0: Yeah, that's the the overall thing. And then we drill down from there is here. Here's the problem I want you to deal with. And then here's the problem (laughs) I want you to deal with.
1: Yeah, because I did this lovely speech on objective setting, and then you just wrecked it.
0: I know. Because you just look tired. <laughs> yes. Um, but something else that came up sort of related to that webinar that we did want to talk about. Um, because oh, I did think we
1: not talk about you didn't
0: have um, You didn't have time really to go through it in the webinar, and that is the whole, uh, whole topic of... Um, Learning styles.
1: Oh, learning styles. Just okay, that's what I All thought you were going to say. I was about say. to say
0: it and then the words just disappeared. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so Jane's doing this webinar that she does, I don't know, a couple times a year. And she does a great job talking about how to, set a, how to create objectives, set objectives for the learning and the kind of words to use that are really more effective for that, uh, how to create great test questions, how to organize the content. And I think there's even something in there about how to choose different types of media, Mm -hmm. whether it's a a graph or a picture or an illustration or whatever you should be using to illustrate your content. It's a fantastic uh, webinar and, and we always get great feedback out of it. But one of the things that came up when we were sort of talking about it this week is... Maybe we should do something more about the whole idea of learning styles, because people are sort of roughly aware that there is this thing called learning styles and that there are different learning styles, but they don't necessarily have a lot more um, depth around it than that. So maybe it's worth talking a little bit about that. So give us your thoughts on learning styles.
1: There being like, you know, 18 or something like that, but really it comes down to three. So
0: there was four. Well, Well, I'll tell uh,
1: you what I think, and then you—well, see, this is the thing. is like you can break it down all kinds of ways. But the basic ones are visual learners, auditory learners, and sensory-slash-kinesthetic learners. What's the fourth one?
0: I've seen visual learners broken up into a subcategory that includes textual, so people that uh, need— Like
1: reading? Yeah,
0: learn by reading versus learn by seeing pictures, because the assumption is often that visual learners need to see pictures— uh, and video and things like that. And that's really the primary thing that works for them, but that's not necessarily the case for everybody.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I think in trucking, I, I'm going to keep it grouped together. Sure. I, I do, uh, I can see your point and I agree because, well, what, what kind of learner do you think you are?
0: Uh, I am, that's a good question. I'm going to reserve judgment on that. Go finish okay. your explanation of them.
1: Well, visual learners are the ones who are the bulk of the population. So most people learn in this way. So they learn and absorb and recall information best by seeing. So they love reading materials. They relate best to things like diagrams, maps, graphs, charts, and pictures. They like to have a pen and paper. And I have a pen and paper, and I have it with me right now because I doodle while I'm, uh, while I'm doing these things. And um, if they can't take notes, they get frustrated. They, can, they need quiet, so they also benefit from recopying or making notes. They tend to be detail-oriented, or tend to be organized. They like to write down directions or draw a map. So that's some of them. Um, for auditory learners, they get their information by hearing. So they don't necessarily need that much to see. They are about 30% of the population, so they're the, mo- the next most common. And they, they like talking. There's a lot of talk. Auditory learners, funnily enough, like speaking. So they relate most effectively to the spoken word. They like to do oral reports. They remember who said what which I am not an auditory learner. I never remember anything about anything that anybody says. They memorize really well. They prefer listening to the news. They remember names, also not me. Um, They talk to themselves. They're good at languages. They remember phone numbers. Man, as as I look at all of these different points, it's like, oh, not me, not me, not me. But the last one which is the um, kinesthetic learners or tactile or sensory, they are a very small part of the population. But they like using their senses and their body while they're learning. So they learn by touching things. They learn by movement. They learn by w- in space. And so they like demonstrations. They master skills through imitation and repetition they, hands on techniques are really, really important for them. And they like to stand and walk around while they're learning things, which is like so not a good school. Uh, you know, that's not what you do in school as soon It'll as you stand up. No, as soon as you stand up, you know, you're told to sit down. So if that's how you learn, um, or if that's how you process information better, then, you know, too bad for you. You, you, you sit down and act like a visual learner like everybody else. So And they learn very well from, from trips and excursions. They like to do the things that they're doing. And so for me, I'm visual and kinesthetic. I, am, I, will, I like to read things and then try them out, or I like to listen or you know, see some instructions and then try them out. I do a lot of standing up when I'm trying to figure things out or walking around. Our daughter is totally kinesthetic. When she was learning multiplication tables, she was like walked around the dining room table over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. So it was kind of funny to watch, but she's very, you know, both of us can't cut things. We can't use scissors sitting down. We cannot. (laughs) I've noticed that, yes. Neither of us can do that. Both of us will stand up so that we can use scissors. And I don't know what it is. And maybe... I don't know. I've just always been like that. Hmm. So now that you've heard um, all of these, and this is not the, you know, this is a pretty exhaustive list. So um, I haven't well, even to it, said all of them.
0: Yeah, but that's, it's an interesting uh, breakdown because as you're going through it, I'm thinking about what my natural preference is versus what I have learned to deal with
1: in mm-hmm. society.
0: Uh, and those are two very different things. Um But it's hard to sort of try and separate them because I'm so used to doing things the way society expects me to do them that it may not be the way I naturally prefer it. So I think I'm largely an auditory learner uh, because I do tend to remember specific details. I do tend to listen. And as I listen to things, uh, I will create a visual in my head that will become sort of the world around that content or whatever it is. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from my background as a musician. I spent so many hours listening to things. And uh, back before every audio track had a video to go with it, you would just sit with a record player mm-hmm. or a CD player and listen. And you would have to create your own world around that. Stop, that rewind,
1: sound. stop, rewind.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on that, um, to a certain extent, I see some kinesthetic in my own stuff because I do like to move around, particularly if I'm like rehearsing uh, a presentation or something like that and sort of learning the content and the way I want to present it. uh, I will be moving around. I tend to do housework or chores in order to do that. uh, And that helps me to sort of get it burned in. Um, And uh, so the visual is really, there's a little bit of that in there, I suppose, because uh, I do see things uh, as I'm doing it, but uh, um, I would prefer And and, and I guess I would prefer words over pictures in a lot of cases because that's more concrete and I know what I'm supposed to be dealing with and I will create my own picture in my head. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting as you're going through all of those things because I'm thinking I can see how you put all of those different things in our courses how you have the visuals, how you have the audio narration. You've got the opportunity for people to try things as much as we can in any learning environment. But then there's also been like the other types of courses that we've built where we've given people a sheet of exercises and says, go out and do this. Go out go and, out do, and this. do this, yeah. Yeah, they put it into practice thing. okay, you've learned this, no, go out and do it, and have your manager sort of check your work afterwards. So uh, yeah, it's interesting seeing the differences. So what do you think you see in trucking in terms of a split of those different types?
1: I honestly, because I've never, or it's very rare for me to be in a group of drivers. I, I, I don't know. I think that the breakdown is the break. I think whoever you're training, if you have a, a class of people, the breakdown, you would probably know the breakdown. Um, that's why you try to, uh, accommodate all the learning styles as much as you can. Um, so what I imagine my suspicion is that most drivers are visual and kinesthetic. And the reason for that is because that's, you know, they are, they have to be very focused and they have to be watching. Like you have to take in a lot of information visually. You have to take in a lot of abstract visual uh, abstract information visually nobody's giving you instructions as you do your job um, and then the other part is the kinesthetic part is the ability to sort of figure out things in space so you know i think those two are the more more common ones in trucking i i really feel that you know there's a lack of a, there's a lack of that opportunity for kinesthetic learning and trucking. I think that more and more should be done with that, because I think that that is something that um, it's it's hard to engage people without getting them to do something. And for the people who are who are driving, they are learning by doing. This is what this is basically how they operate. They are learning as they go. They're learning about, you know, what traffic. Uh, patterns are looking like they're learning about what shippers are, or what kind of experiences that they have there. So I think that there more could be done with that, with that, um, with those experiences. And I don't think enough is being done in terms of training.
0: That's interesting. Well, I'm just sort of thinking that as you're, you're going through these things, you can see there's certain ones of them that the traditional education system really caters to. Um, and, Visual, yeah. The people who need to get up and pace around the room to learn are not covered very well in the traditional education system.
1: And and just just as a an aside, uh, a lot of people think that boys are underserved in the general education system because they are the ones who are more likely to want to get up, hmm. and they are not allowed to get up, and so there a whole lot of other behavior problems occur because they can't get up.
0: Well, I was also just thinking that. Uh, and it's a little bit of stereotyping here, but um, there's a large portion of the trucking industry that hasn't had a great experience with the traditional mm-hmm. education uh, system. And we've got high percentage of people that uh, haven't finished high school or certainly have not gone any any farther than that, but uh, a large portion of them that uh, uh, never even finished high school. So they're not having a great experience with the education system. And I wonder if there's a correlation there between... An education system that is designed for the opposite type of learning um, and the type of experience they have. And people just saying, screw it, I want to get the hell out of here and go out on the road.
1: Completely. I totally agree. And there's a lot of people who think that the school system is very broken. And the way that, you know, you sort of capture children in classrooms, make them sit down and make them go through all of these things in a particular way um, is not serving. Mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, serving that, the needs of the student. That guy who had that very sort of viral speech yes. video about how the education system is a relic of the agrarian age. Yeah. <laughs> and put it really Basically, nicely. you
1: have summer vacation because that's when... Um, that's when you need on the farm. That's when you need it. Yeah, that's when you needed to help on the farm. The other thing that I wanted to point out that's very, very uh, important when you're talking about learning styles is that the way that you teach you're going to try and teach to your learning style. Mm, interesting. And that's what people do. So all of these people who tell a lot of stories...
0: That's their learning style. That's
1: their learning style. They They're learn,
0: auditory learners.
1: Yep. Yeah, they enjoy telling stories that makes them feel comfortable, and so that's, what, that's what's going to come out. The problem is, is all of these people who are visual learners or kinesthetic learners are going... <laughs> can we see something? Or maybe yeah. I can get up and walk around now. And, you know, and, well, and it's, it's important that because, and like I said, I'm not auditory at all. So that's probably where I would have the most weakness in my, in delivery.
0: Hmm. So let's think about how you would apply that. Then if you're a trainer in a fleet and you've got to do uh, create content for drivers, um, you know, how to take advantage of that, how to uh, make sure that you're covering those all of those different groups.
1: You don't have to teach to one learning style. Adults can handle different things. So having visuals, having engaging visuals is always a good thing, you know, just because I'm a visual learner. I mean, having engaging visuals, if you're an auditory learner, then you probably need to get some help with that. But um always have your basic good visuals that you have to build your content anyway. So make sure you include video images that are relevant to the topic, um, charts or diagrams that are relevant to the topic. But what you can also do is incorporate discussion. And stories, you don't have to do it for the entire time. And it, you know, don't go down a rat hole where that's all that's happening is Oh, this one time I did this, and this was happening on the road and all that because your visual and kinesthetic learners are going to be like, Oh, please stop. Um, But a story to introduce something. Um, Allowing people to share their own stories, that will be really good for auditory learners. Well,
0: and I would think that the um, sort of the kinesthetic learners, if they can get involved and do something Mm -hmm. by sharing a story or becoming part of it or directing the the flow of the conversation or the content a little bit, that's going to help them too.
1: Well, for kinesthetic learners, you really need to do demonstration.
0: They or need to you do, do the practical something, stuff, some practice. yes.
1: So if you're talking about vehicle inspections, go and do one. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about how to do log books, go fill out a log. Yeah. Um like do get in
0: the truck and drive around.
1: If you're talking about benefits, show them the benefits for them and let them, you know, fill it out. Like really kinesthetic learning is not that you have to do jumping jacks while you're learning, but it can be as simple as letting people stand up. Mm or not being offended when they stand up, because often people standing up, well, that's a signal that people need a break, one. And two, it may just be that sitting down is just really uncomfortable and they can't process the information when they're just sitting down. So like I said, with my daughter can't, can't sit down and cut, if her teacher said, Samantha, get sit down while you're cutting, she wouldn't be able to cut.
0: Well, it's Maybe. funny because one of the things that I had to learn uh, in doing speeches is you look around the room at the audience and you want to see that they're engaged and stuff. I had to learn that a lot of the time people may be sitting there and they're doodling and it looks like they're not paying attention. But for a lot of those people, that's how they focus. That's how they process it. And they need to be doing that. Um, you know, And I see you're like that as well. You're always going to be doodling or... carving up some uh, styrofoam coffee cup or something. (laughs) you got to be doing something with the hands. And there's a lot of people that are like that, that have to be doing something else in order to focus it. Uh, And I find I'm kind of the same way. If I'm consuming content, if I'm listening to somebody talking, it's really hard for me to be looking at them. I need to be sort of looking out somewhere else and have some sort of low-level engagement with something else. And that allows me to focus on what they're saying.
1: And that whole, if I'm just required to listen and I can't do anything with my hands or draw or be engaged by something visual, then what ends up happening is, and I can't help it, I just don't listen. Yeah, I just stop. It's it's like it just doesn't go in my
0: head. It's what we were talking about earlier about evaluating training and getting rid of all the distractions. Well, if you're forcing people to do things and consume content a very particular way, you're imposing a bunch of distractions that may just prevent them from getting that content.
1: Yeah, it's like noise. There's additional noise and you have to, to concentrate really hard. So I really enjoy listening to the radio when people are talking, like when there's a when there's a um, discussion going on. But I find that I like to have podcasts so that I can rewind because I will I'll get distracted by something, and it's so easy for me to get distracted when I'm just listening. Mm-hmm. So I have to go back and rewind. And we do that in our courses. I mean, if that's if that's something that you need to do, that you can always go back and rewind and revisit and and you can go back into a course when you've done it and look at it again and that kind of thing. So we do build that in.
0: Hmm. yeah it's interesting that uh you know when you force people to consume content a particular way they may ultimately do it but it can be exhausting for them you know they may deal with those distractions and all of that background noise of being told that they must sit and they can't doodle or whatever the case may be um and they in oftentimes will fight through it and deal with it, but it's exhausting to them.
1: And it's all, yeah, it's exhausting. You don't enjoy the content anymore. You get tired. It's, it's just, Mm -hmm. one interesting thing about auditory and how not auditory I am, Um, my uh, people listening to music while they're studying, (laughs) I cannot understand if you're trying to concentrate and there's music, how do you even do that? Like, that doesn't even yeah. compute for me. But all of these people are like, oh, yeah. I, I always listen to music when I study. And I think, or when you're doing work that requires thought, I'm like, no, there must be silence. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm the same way. Because when people have music on, I'm like, if the music's on, that's all I'm hearing. I'm listening to every bit of it. I'm oh, not really? not anything else. Well, I just you know, I've, I've spent so much time having to analyze it and learn it and like I hear all the different parts and the structure and all of that and if I can't hear it because there's a quiet part then I wonder what's going on and uh, so I'm just I'm completely focused on that if there's music going on. So
1: But can you do something while Oh, so you can't do anything while music is playing? Well, it depends if
0: I can do brainless things. So I will often have music going while I'm doing things um, like if it's if it's nighttime and I'm working And I've got to do like design work, like I've got to uh, clean up graphics and things like that. Well, it's pretty mindless work. So I can do that with the music going and I will often do that. But if if I have to do any kind of thinking work, like writing, uh, you know, if I'm writing an article or something like that, I got to have silence and I'll get the noise canceling headphones and put them on to just make sure that there's no other noise getting in the way. And that's usually why I do that stuff at night or on weekends or something when there's no email or phone calls coming in, no distractions, because I need all of that stuff out of the way.
1: I wonder, that's interesting because it's like, because you say you're not visual, really. that that visual learning is not your your strength, but auditory is. So basically the opposite thing is happening is that music is distracting because that's what you want to focus on. And whereas I find music distracting because I can't think at all. Mm. Like I don't want to listen to the music or do anything that I'm doing. I just can't think. It's just all done.
0: Well, yeah, it's interesting to think about and sort of look at how to handle that in different situations, how different people respond to it, and to create content around that. So uh, um, well, the
1: you know. other thing that we do in our courses that helps kinesthetic learners and this is it's a pretty minor, but it it can be it's small for us, but I think it's big for other people is allowing people to bookmark, mm-hmm. allowing people to stop and start yeah and that's something that I do is that I can do a task for a little while, but then I need a break so if I had to do a two hour online course, which is a bit long but a two-hour online course without a break because you would get booted out or whatever and Mm -hmm. not be able to get back in or have to start over. That would make me crazy. Yeah, like some of these
0: video courses that you basically have to go through the whole video in one sitting. Yeah, which uh, I think that's probably why some of these video guys do really short modules is because, uh, yeah, it would drive people crazy otherwise. But yeah, being able to bookmark Bookmark. it, being able to go at your own pace also helps Mm -hmm. with that, that, uh, you know, you can spend time in a place if you want to, or you can zip through something else uh, if you don't feel that you need it so that you can really focus on the areas that you care about.
1: And you don't have to do the test right after you finish the course.
0: Yeah, being able to take some time to digest it and then come back and do a test.
1: Yeah, which is also part of, and I'm not sure if that, well, that's a learning preference for sure. I don't know if it's like what kind of learning style it is. I'd have to look at that. But I think it's important that people be given as many options. And that is the thing about adult learners, is that they want to have the options. They want to be able to choose how they're going to take in information. And if you make them do it a certain way, Adults aren't going to have, uh, you know, temper tantrums like kids. Kids will. You hope. Well. (laughs) Don't say that. We've seen people
0: have temper tantrums.
1: Yeah, this is true, but not in a learning. Oh, no, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not, you know, not in our current role. Yeah. But in the consulting role, definitely there there were, I would say, things that were like tantrums. But, and it was because people were being forced to do things that they didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And with kids, you know, that's when you get the calls from the principal mm-hmm. saying, you know, little Johnny is throwing chairs around. And my first thought is like, well, how stressed yeah. was Johnny? Well, what was he, you know, what was happening in that room that made him want to throw chairs? So, um, you know, there's a, of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that that goes underneath.
0: hmm hmm Interesting. Um, yeah. so we've uh, covered quite a little uh, a little bit of learning theory here.
1: I know um, this is like just the learning theory segment of podcast every once in
0: a while, our podcast will actually be about business. <laughs> it will actually be about the training stuff rather than just rambling about what we've been up to and how we need a break or whatever other things we're whining about. Um,
1: well, I think it's important to to realize that we're not just regurgitating regulations. There's there's an actual process. There's a lot of thought that goes behind it, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a lot of it. We have a lot of experience that um, helps us. In, it it informs how we approach uh, a new course, a new something new on the LMS and like any kind of new thing we're thinking about it in those terms Mm -hmm. is how easy is this going to be for people how are drivers going to see it how are you know that kind of that kind of information so we Mm -hmm. don't talk about that a whole lot but I think we I always am thinking about that and I think you are as well
0: yeah yeah for sure yeah for sure um changing subjects kind of wildly There's something else that I thought of that I wanted to go through and just sort of, uh, mention. Um, and that is, uh, we had an awesome experience with the radio yesterday, uh, that wasn't even us being on the radio. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, here we are, it's sort of the mid part of February and a couple of weeks ago we announced the, uh, the 2017 best fleets. Oh, uh, we haven't
1: even talked about the 2017 best fleets.
0: Well, we talked about it before when we were doing the evaluation and last time we were about to announce it. So that's all been announced and, uh. Uh, very exciting, as always. And uh, one of our... We can exhale. Yes. One of our multi-time winners, a Central Oregon four. Truck Company...
1: They're four-time.
0: Yeah, was uh, on uh, Road Dog Radio yesterday. And uh, this was uh, Rick Williams, CEO of Central Oregon Truck Company.
1: And it was quite funny because at one uh, the beginning, I think that the uh, the host of the show was... Saying that we owned them.
0: Yeah, he was given them. (laughs) He was given some bad notes. So, uh, for the first part of the show, we apparently owned Central Oregon Truck (laughs) Company, uh, which we do not. (laughs) We've been busy, but we're not that busy. Yeah. So, anyway, likes
1: us, but not that much. Yeah,
0: but he gave us some great, uh, great plugs and had a lot of nice things to say about the best leads program the value that they get out of it uh, for participating and how they think it's it's helping them as a business to learn what they can be doing and they apply that and that's why they see their business improving a lot so it was fantastic and uh, uh, our uh, our great thanks uh, to Rick for um, mentioning us and talking about that because he was on there for It was about a 45-minute interview, and he was talking about everything under the sun, the nature of their business and a bit of his history and his thoughts on the economy and what they see happening in the industry in general. So for him to spend a couple of minutes talking about the Best Fleets program was quite awesome.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It's always great to hear how people are, are affected by the Best Fleets program, like how people are using it. Or how people are embracing it. It really it helps because when you're in the middle of it and you're just doing these interviews and it kind of gets it can get you down after a while. You think, oh, why am I doing all of this work? And but then you then you hear people like Rick talking about how much they appreciate it and how much value it does bring to them. It uh, kind of motivates you a little mm-hmm. bit more.
0: Yeah, so that was great. So we owe Rick a couple of drinks, I guess, at the convention. Uh, well,
1: I think he'll get we yeah. will
0: get a couple. we <laughs> will get a few. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was very uh, awesome. Uh, we're looking forward to the convention coming up in the end of March. It's late this year. Um, but it looks like it's going to be a, a fun and exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's different this year is that we're not going to be doing a breakout session at the uh, conference. So what we've decided, since we have this mountain of data that we've collected through the program and stats and uh, interesting ideas that people have come up with, Uh, What we decide is instead of doing a breakout session, we're going to do a webinar. So uh, we'll do like an hour webinar. I think it's going to be towards the end of March, sort of uh, a week or so before the convention, and share all of that information with everybody. So uh, there will be information posted um, for any listeners who are interested and uh, uh, anybody who wants to come to that. uh, But we found a lot of really cool stuff. Um, So I I think we're going to have quite a lot to talk about.
1: I so. think we will. Yes.
0: Uh, and in other news, um, what is in our other news? So we, oh, we finally uh, went live with our new survey code uh, that nobody can see yet because we're just finalizing some of the templates. So you've been working on the templates and doing some data entry on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's what's your experience been so far?
1: It's been good. It's been uh, is. Relatively easy to use. It looks like it's got a lot of different options, a lot of different uh, ways that you can, a lot of different types of questions that you can ask. So that's really cool. Well, this is
0: very relieving for me because usually the hardest test I have to go through on on any new code or the development side is, is, is Jane using it for the first time. Uh, so if uh, Jane can use it for an hour and I don't get yelled at, then that's good. Then it's it's in good shape to go live. Well,
1: I was kind of surprised that you brought it up without you know, talking to me about it first to make sure <laughs> that well, I was going to say nice it things. It was a bit
0: risky, yeah. I might but have been yelled at. But
1: um, I've added the Best Fleets Driver Survey, um, which was pretty easy because it was just a copy. You can copy surveys, which uh is is really we have that copy function in a lot mm-hmm. of different places and that that works really well um but I really like your, the ability to have um rating scales that mm-hmm. uh, but for a number of different topics so you you know rate the following from on a scale from one to five or one to ten, and then you have there's a whole bunch of options that you can uh, rate below them so rate it on ease of use rate it on. Um, actually it, that makes me think maybe we should use the survey function to get some feedback on how Carrier's Edge is working.
0: Oh, like a level three evaluation and see how, what people thought of it later the on.
1: Is, no, how about a level two? Ah, uh, okay. And then get that feedback and then, yeah, you know, what did you like best? What do you, what would you like to see improved? What features would you like?
0: Oh, like a smile sheet on the, on the course.
1: Well, I mean, we could do very a variety of different levels of evaluation, but you know, we should do that since we have that.
0: Uh, It is in my plans to start doing an annual survey uh, for customers, basically on their anniversary.
1: I think we should do it after orientation, (laughs) after we do the walkthrough. Like after we get a new customer and sort of do the walkthrough and give them a month
0: afterwards or whatever. Or
1: w- yeah, like after they've done some training, or
0: well, we do a follow up with them a month afterwards to so see we give how them it's going. A survey, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we get a higher uh, pickup rate if we have somebody calling and and sort of asking those questions. Um, but maybe it's both. Maybe it's a combination. You can either do it online, or if you don't do it online, we're gonna harass you on the phone.
1: Or if you don't, if you don't, well, because we have a new customer service. A customer, yeah, a customer service rep who wants to talk on the phone. Unlike the rest of the company, yeah, we, we don't hired like, somebody
0: who likes the who phone. Who
1: actually likes the phone, so she's going to be an incredible advantage to us because we're all shut-ins who really just want to work at our computers. Um, silently. Silently, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and walk around every once in a while. Um, oh no, so she might. Do, it might be that she offers to do a call, or if you, you prefer, you can do a survey. Mm, so maybe yep. it's, a, here's your option, adult learning. Yep. You get your options of what you how you want to provide feedback.
0: Yeah, for sure. So oh, look like at this. this. I is like a, it. Here we have product planning.
1: I know, and it's on, and it's like, this is happening right now, people. This is, this is not, it was not staged.
0: Yeah, more work for me.
1: Well, generally, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, more work for Nina. Yeah.
0: But she'd like that. She I likes think that she stuff. likes that stuff. She loves it. Which that is stuff.
1: why we, we thought, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good new hire. But Tommy's not going away. For all the Tommy yes. fans out there, Tommy's, Tommy's still, is still be Yeah.
0: Yeah, Tommy's still doing support. But the reality is that Tommy's good at a whole lot of different things. Uh, so we need to get him doing some of those other things, and he can't do that if he's doing support full time. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, he'll still be around, um, sending the bizarre messages that he sends, <laughs> but people love him for, uh, so you're actually going to get more of Tommy cause he's going to sp- have more time to do the, uh, system usage videos, uh, or the sort of tutorial videos that he's done. And I think um, we should
1: have, to, okay. Are we having Tommy on the next podcast?
0: That is our plan.
1: Okay. Tommy. Yeah. We should tell Tommy that.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> well, see, he doesn't care. I could have told him this morning to come on the podcast, and he'd be fine.
1: He's like honey badger.
0: He is the honey badger. But
1: he does not yeah. care.
0: Yeah. So,
1: and that's the clean version.
0: Yes. And I think that is a perfect spot to end. Is it.
1: that a good spot to end?
0: Tommy is the honey badger, <laughs> and we come to the end of another uh, outstanding podcast. Well. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you all for listening.
1: Thank you.